Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, everybody, welcome back to yet another episode of the Red Light Report. And on today's episode, we have what would be considered one of the, if not the top breathing expert in the world. Patrick McGowan, who was a chronic asthmatic for most of his life, but he applied what's called the Buteco breathing method, which freed himself from his asthma condition. Um, as a qualified Buteco practitioner, he is now just one of a few Western experts accredited and authorized by Constantin Buteco to teach his method. And Patrick has three clinics, Asthma Care, which are in Dublin, Galway, and Cork. Patrick is an international best-selling author of The Oxygen Advantage and is the creator and master instructor of The Oxygen Advantage Technique. And Patrick is widely regarded as one of the world's uh, leading breathing re-education experts. So whether you're a weekend warrior or an Olympic athlete or someone who just wants to be healthy and well, uh, Patrick's methods provide a fast, simple, scientific, and certain way to revolutionize your sports performance and just improve your overall health and well-being. Over the past two decades, Patrick has trained thousands of people around the world to safely challenge their bodies and produce positive changes through breathing re-education. He teaches a new way to breathe combined with specific exercises designed to improve blood chemistry. The result is an increase of oxygen flow to all of the body systems, meaning greater endurance, strength, and power. Also, Patrick has released two new books this year in 2021, uh, Atomic Focus and then The Breathing Cure. So without further ado, Patrick, welcome to the, the Red Light Report. It's a pleasure, Mike. It's uh, We need to do something with that bio. It's too long. So yeah, <laughs> so let's let's have some fun. Well, let's, let's do it, man. So give us a quick background. I kind of gave uh, the audience a little bit, but tell us uh, your history with breathing and how you kind of got into it and how you've become such an expert in the area. Well, I suppose I just, I fell into it by accident. You mentioned I had asthma. I had asthma from the time I was a young child. It was getting worse in my teenage years. It was getting progressively worse into my early 20s. And with that, I had sleep disorder breathing. So I was stopping breathing during sleep, but I didn't know what it was. It wasn't diagnosed as anything. But my concentration in high school and university was was pretty poor. Now, you know what? I'm not unique. There's millions of kids out there the same way. And you kind of learn to put up with whatever you have because, you know, if you've got poor concentration, well, how do you know if you have poor concentration unless you wake up some morning and you wake up really feeling refreshed and with a very much inability to hold your attention. And that's what happened to me. I read a newspaper article in 1997 or 1998 about the importance of nose breathing, which I was never doing, and about the importance of breathing light, which I wasn't doing. So I was the person that you would hear their breathing. If I walked into your clinic, you'd hear me. I was would be breathless. I would be sighing frequently. It's not that I was having a panic attack, but just my breathing was too fast and too hard. And I breathed it through an open mouth. And I have to say, it wreaked havoc on my health. So my the biggest impact it had was on my sleep, that I was waking up feeling refreshed. And in terms of my asthma, my symptoms reduced by about 50% in the first one to two weeks. It was a journey that was amazing. It was so simple, the information. I remember even breathing less air, which is contrary to what most people say, because we often hear this, take this deep breath and big breath and whatever. I was able to improve the circulation of my hands. I never knew that my blood vessels were influenced by how much air I was breathing. And I never realized that the more air I was breathing, the more my blood vessels were constricting. So I going around with my mouth open, breathing hard. And, you know, I've, I used to have this idea too, that it was important to be taking these full big breaths. i never knew that I was depriving my body of oxygen. So that was the story, you know, like I, my background in, in education was in a totally different subject. I was in a completely different field. And then about three years later, I decided that I want to change careers. I changed careers into breathing. And it's been uh, it's been an amazing journey for 20 years. Yeah, you talked about the importance of nasal breathing. And so 
I have some interesting notes I wrote down from your books and other books that I read about breathing, which I'm sure you're familiar with, of course, but I want the audience to be aware of just the impact and really the history of nasal breathing. It's not like a, a new revolutionary technique per se, but we've just swung so far on the other side of the pendulum to where we've become such a mouth breathing society, like you're saying the health impacts and ramifications are massive. So so bear with me, Patrick, but the, I think the audience will find this interesting. For example, the Native Americans believe that breath inhaled through the mouth sapped the body of strength, deformed the face, and caused stress and disease. On the other hand, breath inhaled through the nose kept the body strong, made the face beautiful, and prevented disease. And then more recently, there was the Framingham study uh, from the 1980s, which was a 70-year longitudinal study, and they discovered that the greatest indicator of lifespan wasn't genetics, it wasn't diet, and it wasn't the amount of daily exercise, it was lung capacity. So to your point, Patrick, um, nasal breathing goes a lot further than just not breathing through your mouth. There's, there's many health ramifications. And then lastly... Some holistic and biological dentists believe that mouth breathing contributes to periodontal disease, bad breath, and is even the number one cause of cavities, being even more damaging than sugar consumption, bad diet, or poor hygiene. So is that a lot of hyperbole, or is there a lot of truth to all this information and postulation about the importance of not breathing through your mouth? Well, I would go as far as saying that the nose is, by breathing through it, it's the only way to breathe. I've seen these results over 20 years. I've seen the impact of changing breathing patterns on, on sleep, on mental health, on respiratory issues, and also on sports performance. And when we asked the question, Mike, what function is implied by the mouth when it comes to breathing? You know, any listener, open your mouth and look into it. Look at a mirror, look into your mouth. What does the mouth do? Zero. So the mouth is a hole. That's all it is. And it's a hole whereby air can go straight down your throat into your lungs. The mouth does nothing. Our ancestors wouldn't have been mouth breathers. We would have reverted to mouth breathing when we were in times of an emergency. So mouth breathing is synonymous with emergency. It's really about fight or flight. And the interesting thing here is that when we breathe through the mouth, we breathe faster and harder and we breathe more upper chest. That's fight or flight. So I would say that mouth breathers are in a greater increased sympathetic arousal and they're more in that stress response as opposed to relaxation whereas by nose breathing imposes a resistance to your breathing during the day that's two to three times that of the mouth nose breathing slows down breathing nose breathing has greater amplitude of the diaphragm so mouth breathers typically will breathe using the upper chest and what's interesting even in your world of physical therapy is that there's often an emphasis on on achieving optimal use of the diaphragm functional breathing for functional movement but who was talking about breathing through the nose I don't think we will get a long-term outcome in terms of optimal movement of the diaphragm unless we switch to nose breathing. So back in the 1970s, there was an American ear, nose and throat doctor, Dr. Morris Cottle. He said that the human nose was responsible for 30 functions in the human body. So when we breathe through the nose, it increases oxygen uptake in the blood by 10%. This is known since 1988. Nasal breathing conserves moisture because when we breathe in through the nose, of course, the air is warmed and moistened as the air travels into the lungs. But on the breath out, the nose traps this moisture and heat and takes it from the exhaled breath. And by doing that, it's conserving moisture. So mouth breathers are going to be more dehydrated. You know, all we have to think of is the old folks sit, sitting inside in a nursing home, sitting on a chair with the mouth open, panting. And they, they can be very dehydrated, senior people, as they get older. Nose breathing for dental health, I would absolutely agree with. And the Native American Indians, I wasn't aware of that, that they said that if you breathe through your nose, that helps the development of the face. That is true. That's been borne out by a number of studies. Nothing new on that. Um, 1975, there was a functional orthodontist, E.P. Harvold was his name. Got young monkeys. He divided them up into groups. He, he surgically blocked the noses of some of the monkeys. He forced the monkeys to breathe through an open mouth. All of the experimental animals acquired a facial occlusion that was different from the control group. So, you know, the orthodontist industry has debated this for decades, all in the meantime that millions of children have been allowed to mouth breathe, mouth open, tongue hanging low, narrow palate, not enough room for the teeth. And as a result, overcrowding, it's a travesty, you know, when it comes to sleep. 
they're more prone to snoring and struggle with sleep. People with mental health issues, if they're breathing fast and hard, that's reinforcing their, their stress state, their anxiety. And it's through the breath that we can influence, not just a, like we can really influence the autonomic nervous system, those functions that are normally outside of our control. And the science has borne this out over three decades with heart rate variability, with vagal tone, um, by strengthening the bar reflex, etc. So this is really time that we get breathing out there to the people and to take it out of the woo-woo because it's not woo-woo. There's nothing woo-woo about the breath. And we just really have to show that there is something absolutely vital in this and we have to be looking at it. So that beckons the question, why have we as a society moved away from the natural way of breathing of, you know, nas- through the nasal passages? Um, and so why have we become a society of mouth breathers? Is there a rhyme or is there a reason? Are we lazy? You know, wh- what is that about? I suppose no attention on it. Like, why would we have switched from nose to mouth breathing in the first place? There's probably no particular reason for it. Lack of breastfeeding can be one because... Breastfeeding is not just about nutrition, but it's about manipulation of the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. So if a child is is feeding from the mother, the child gets more exercise in terms of the the work involved in taking the milk from the mother. And the food that we eat, you know, like what sort of food are young kids eating? They're eating processed foods, not processed, but pureed, soft foods. There's no development of the jaws. In terms of we are living in houses that are very, very airtight and that can be poor because there can be poor circulation of air. And as a result, that can change breathing patterns. The breathing of the mother, uh, just as heart rate variability of the mother influences the heart rate variability in the breathing of the child. So if the mother is in poor breathing patterns, what effect is that going to have on the child? You know, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Um, But all we know is that 25 to 50% of studied children persistently mouthbreed. And these kids are more prone to sleep disorder breathing, increased risk of ADHD. And the problem is, if a child has sleep disorder breathing, and if it's untreated by age five, these kids have a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. And the reason being is because the brain is developing during the formative years. And in order for the brain to develop the way it should develop, sleep must be deep. But if a child is snoring or stopping breathing or having restriction to their breathing, they're aroused from sleep. Their sleep isn't as deep as it should do. And as a result, it can impact development of the brain. So that study is by Karen Bonnock that was published in Pediatrics in 2012, looking at 11,000 British children over a five-year period or over an eight-year period thing. But, you know, Mike, the thing is, I suppose, that it's starting to get out there, but it's not driven by the industry. It's driven by... People like ourselves who've been working with the breath for years, getting it out there in books. And and when parents read it, I think parents do be shocked when they realize. And you mentioned bad breath. There's studies on that. There's bad studies showing this that podcast. children who mouth-breathe are more prone to bad breath. I think any dentist, if they are any way observant, and they should be observant, that the patients who are coming in, the chronic mouth-breathers, the mouth breathers, all the, like when they're lying back in the dental chair, it's going to be a person who's breathing through the mouth that fogs up the mirror of the dentist. Dentists should know straight away. And I have a mouthful of dental cavities I had growing up. And it, I don't think it was for major eating of sweets. You know, so bacteria is more rampant in a dry mouth, gum disease. Um, you know, so dental health is impacted shape of the face is impacted, sleep is impacted, development of the child is impacted, and yeah, quite a lot to it. So yeah, like you're saying, with children, it impacts their brain development. So what about the others who are um, in their 30s, 40s, you know, 60s, 70s, having sleep issues, whether it's uh, snoring, which Mm. I've read is not normal, any amount of snoring is not normal, of course, um, sleep apnea. And like you're saying, these sleeping disturbances don't allow you to get into that deep sleep, restorative sleep, where a lot of the healing and repairing and growth happens on a nightly basis, or at least it should. Um, But also, it affects the pituitary gland when you don't get into that deep sleep where it's not releasing vasopressin, which 
when it's normally produced or, or released, it helps the cells in your body retain water. The point being, when you don't get into that deep sleep, vasopressin isn't released, thus your body's not retaining the water. So you're going to have to feel like you have to go to the bathroom. And so those people who are getting up in the middle of the night with their normal routine of going to the bathroom, is that indicative of poor breathing habits during their sleep? And then the second part of the question was, as an adult, what are the long-term ramifications on top of um, poor concentration, focus, and other issues with the brain? Well, if you're getting up to go to the bathroom during the night, your sleep is disrupted. And that's the problem with that. And ideally, we have six, seven, eight, eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. Um, mouth breathing is absolutely going to cause light breathing. And mouth breathing and fast and shallow breathing contribute to snoring and sleep apnea. There are studies that are borning this out, borne this out. I wrote an article with two ear, nose and throat doctors that was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine in January of this year, looking at breathing re-education and the phenotypes of sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is a very prevalent condition. Um, it affects more men than females, but it affects females post-menopause. The incidence increases by about 200 to 300%. So you spoke about focus and concentration. I think these are these are really important topics. Society demands that we are able to concentrate. And our concentration is our ability to hold our attention on one thing. And society demands that we have a decent attention span, which is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. So you think of the school child, the high school kid, the university kid, the corporate worker, the family person, sports, military, it doesn't matter. You need to be able to hold your attention on doing what you're doing. I couldn't hold my attention on doing what I was doing when I was in university. I would have the book in front of me. My eyes would be looking at the page, but my attention was stuck in my head and I had fatigue. This is absolutely endemic out there. So society is grading kids that they can do well academically without giving them the tools to concentrate. And in order to reach flow states, which is that coveted state whereby a state of relaxation and alertness at the same time, that we're fully immersed in what we are doing, that time is flying by, and it's almost that hours can go by and it feels like a second. How do you achieve that? To achieve that, you need concentration. But concentration is not available to everybody because I would argue that people with sleep disorder breathing don't have good concentration and people with dysfunctional breathing don't have good concentration. And the reason being is number one is they are tired, but number two is they are increased sympathetic arousal. You cannot achieve a flow state whereby the mind is in relaxation and alertness at the same time if you're in a constant sympathetic arousal. And now then we have to ask, well, what impact does this have on productivity in the workplace? But more, more than that, what impact does it have on a person's quality of life? Because if you're living stuck in your head, drowning in thought, of course, it's going to negatively affect your mental health. And it, it leads to unhappiness, you know, because we as human beings, we, sh we should have some degree of control over our mind. We should have, a, you know, some calmness over the mind. And in order to achieve a calmness of the mind, we need the calmness of the breath. And what's more, I would say, this is going way beyond mindfulness. This has nothing got to do with mindfulness. Because if your respiratory physiology is off and if your sleep is off, your mind is agitated. And I think for me, one of the best things that I learned for my own personal life was the ability to bring a stillness and a calmness to the mind, the ability to have focus and sustained attention on doing what I'm doing. I've been more creative. I've been more intuitive, but I've been happier because I remember I was in the corporate world going back 25 years ago and I, I didn't like it. And I couldn't cope with it. And now we are starting to see that people are suffering from burnout and exhaustion and that daily life is having such a negative impact on them. And really, the breath is one of those things that we can tap into to alter states. It's not always the situation that's causing our reaction. Like It's not the situation that we should be blaming for our reaction. We should also be asking, what's our physiology? Are we able to cope with the situation? So that, that brings up a lot of great points, one of them being in this day and age, whether it's the U.S. or over in Ireland like you are, seems like uh, life is getting faster, it's getting more stressful, and it leads to this, you know, you're unconscious of how you're breathing. And ever since I read your book, within the last month, 
I've been much more aware of how shallow I'm breathing or if I'm uh, doing some work or I'm stressed for whatever reason, I might not be breathing at all. And I'm becoming more and more aware of that, which is eye-opening as to either my rapid breathing or lack of breathing. So my question to you would be for people, which would probably be the majority, people who are stressed or have not been aware of their breath, let alone the impacts of their poor breathing, what is the first step? Is it just becoming aware and then realizing, oh, I'm not breathing or I'm breathing through my mouth. Now I need to do some calm breathing through my nose. Is that the first step? Or what would you suggest um, for people to become aware of how they're breathing to make it this new instilled ingrained habit of, like you said, becoming calm, uh, slower breathing, more mindful? What would you tell people who are just stepping into the world of breathing? Uh, the first thing I would ask them is to, to, I talk about the merits of breathing through the nose and having the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. I would ask them if they're waking up at a dry mouth in the morning, we use a tape. I have my own tape that I use as well that surrounds the mouth. There's a lot of people when they hear about taping the lips, which I was doing this way 20 years ago, they can get apprehensive. So we use a tape that surrounds the mouth to bring the lips together. I would show them how to decongest their nose. So if they have a stuffy nose, take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch their nose, hold their nose, and they could just gently nod their head up and down as they hold their breath. And if they do that five or six times with a minute's rest in between each, they'll start to notice their nose opening up. I would measure their functional breathing using the BOLT score. And there was a study by physical, a professor of physical therapy called Kyle Kiesel from Evansville University that was published in 2018. And he looked at 51 individuals and he found that if their bold score is the same breath hold time exactly described as what we use in the bold score, if it's above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that this functional breathing is not present. So people who have a lower bold score typically breathe faster and harder in upper chest. And that faster and harder in upper chest breathing then is going to be impacting even breathlessness during physical exercise because how you breathe during physical exercise is impacted by how you breathe during rest. How you breathe during the day is also impacting how you breathe during sleep. So then I would work with my own students. I would have them breathe less air. And this was really what got me back 25 years ago, because when I started breathing less air, I could feel the temperature of my fingers increase. So very simple. You know, put one hand on the chest, one hand just above the navel. Take your attention out of the mind and onto your breathing. Follow your breathing. And really take a soft breath coming into your nose. And a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out. And a very soft breath coming into your nose. And a really relaxed and a slow and gentle breath out. And deliberately slow down your breathing, that your breathing is so soft to the point that you are hardly breathing at all. If you're doing it correctly, you should feel air hunger. And air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, your blood vessels dilate. And more oxygen is delivered throughout the body. So even though when you're slowing down your breath and you're breathing less air and you feel air hunger, you are feeling air hunger, but your body is getting more oxygen. So here's a simple exercise that can improve your blood flow, improve oxygen delivery due to the Bohr effect, which has been known since 1904, stimulate the vagus nerve. And by stimulating the vagus nerve, it causes a slowing of the heart. And when the heart rate slows down, the, the brain is interpreting that the body is safe. And also by stimulating the vagus nerve, you are down-regulating. So it's helping to increase sympathy. It's helping to increase parasympathetic drive. So I'd start off students with that and getting them to breathe through the nose during the day. And then after a few days of practice of breathe light, I would have them then breathe low. So it's nose and low. So they have their hands either side of their lower ribs. And as they breathe in, their lower ribs are moving out. And as they breathe out, the lower ribs are moving in. And to achieve optimal movement of the diaphragm in order to influence the zone of opposition and the generation of intra-abdominal pressure. And then we would bring in slow breathing. And slow breathing to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. And this in turn to strengthen the bar reflex and to stimulate the vagus nerve, but to achieve a balance in the autonomic nervous system and to increase what's called heart rate variability, which is an objective measurement of vagal tone. It's known that people who are not well, either physically or emotionally, that they have reduced heart rate variability. 
and they can have reduced sensitivity of the baroreflex. So this, this is the pressure receptors inside the major blood vessels, which are monitoring our blood pressure. So for example, in the aorta, which is the largest blood vessel in the body, there are pressure receptors. And also in the carotid arteries, which are feeding the, the face and the neck and the head with blood. And these pressure receptors need to be very sensitive to changes in blood pressure. So if there's an increase in blood pressure, the baroreceptors should send immediate signals for the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to slow down to bring down blood pressure. And conversely, if there's a drop in blood pressure, the baroreceptors send signals for blood pressure to normalize. So we can strengthen and improve the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. And I'm looking at breathing from three dimensions, from breathing light, which is about the biochemistry, from breathing low, which is about optimal movement of the diaphragm, and from breathing slow. And normally I use the acronym light, slow, and deep, and that would be LSD. So then we bring this into physical exercise because somebody goes for a, a walk or a jog with their mouth open. That doesn't make sense to me. It's trauma to the upper airways. It's hyperventilating or overuse of the upper chest, fast and shallow breathing. It's not efficient. It's not economical. Um, it's 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 really not the right way. There's again no benefits to going for your to do your physical exercise with your mouth open. Do it all with the mouth closed, even if you have to go a bit slower. And at the start, you will have to go a little bit slower. But in time, as you practice it, you will be able to go faster and faster. So the air hunger diminishes when you when you continue to do it. So that would be kind of one aspect of it that we would look at, Mike. And then giving people strategies that if they're stressed in the workplace. And I was writing kind of with atomic focus, just, you know, just looking for kind of ideas for it. And I came across a podcast in the UK by Dr. Rangan Chatterley. And he was, he was interviewing a brain surgeon. And I just found it amazing. The brain surgeon said that if he gets into a tricky situation, now you can imagine a brain surgeon getting into a tricky situation. Now that's a tricky situation. And the brain surgeon says, if I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. And I said, bingo, this is it. You know, why aren't we taught this? Like if we're in the corporate world, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening and we're getting stressed. How do we react? Faster and shallow breathing and fast and shallow breathing. What does the body want to do there? The body just wants to get the hell out of there. Once we go into that fast and shallow breathing, the fight or flight response is kicked in and the brain is there to protect the body. And you cannot think straight in that situation because all the brain wants to do is to get you out of that situation. So if you have a higher bolt score, which is the length of your comfortable breath hold time that we spoke about earlier referencing Kyle Kiesel's paper, if you have a higher bolt score, your breathing is naturally calmer and lighter and slower and lower. You have more resilience because it'll take a lot more pressure and, and situations to push you over the edge. But if I have somebody coming in and I see them and they have a history of panic disorder and I look at their breathing and their breathing is shallow and fast and they have irregular breathing, a sigh every few minutes, I know it's not going to take much to push that old person over the edge. So the problem is, it's not how they are breathing necessarily during this situation. The problem is that their everyday breathing is poor. So number one, improve everyday breathing. Get that right. Number two, if you get into a situation in the workplace or in the family life or whatever you get into, there's always going to be situations. That's the name of the game. That's the, the way it is. And if you feel that your life, everything is going perfect, just wait a bit. Wait a bit. When you get into that situation, bring your attention onto your breathing. And when you're feeling yourself get, getting a little bit stressed and your breathing is a bit faster and harder, always think of the exhalation. Take a soft breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And if you can slow down the exhalation, that's all you have to do. Take a soft breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And if you can slow down the exhalation, you are telling the brain, the body is telling the brain that everything is okay. And the brain will send signals of calm accordingly. 
So we can respond to a difficult situation two ways. One is have our mouth open, breathe fast and shallow, forget about it, because you're not going to come up with a good solution there. Number two, have good functional breathing anyway. Breathe in and out through your nose. And when you're feeling stressed, have a slow and prolonged exhalation. And that will help to downregulate. And I've used this like to give you a few stories. I work quite a bit with military as well. And in September, October, I'm going over to different bases and I stay at air forces and I work with pilots. For about two months ago, I was working with snipers and these are professional, elite military trained and they are, they are sitting be- behind the sight of a rifle for one hour and talking about focus and concentration because these guys cannot allow their attention to waver for one hour. That's difficult, you know, in terms of, and that's where you need to train the brain, but we use the breath to train the brain to be focused and concentrated but you need good sleep and good breathing. These guys are physically fit, deep sleep, good breathing all comes together. And the second aspect was how to breathe while pulling the trigger. You know, do you breathe in and pull the trigger? Do you breathe out and pull the trigger? Or do you have a very soft breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation? And just towards the bottom of the exhalation, you pull the trigger that you breathe into the shot and bingo. And when somebody tells me, breathe in as much oxygen as possible and get rid of as much carbon dioxide. Well, if anybody is telling you that, I have to say they have no clue of what they're talking about. This podcast interview was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com. That's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com. Or you can also find it on biolite.shop. That's biolite.shop. So that brought up a lot of great points and a lot of great questions. But let's let's continue on the segue you provided about kind of the paradox of oxygen versus carbon dioxide. Like you said, we're all kind of told and it's relatively taught and we believe that we need to breathe in more oxygen. We need to, need to expel more carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide is bad for us. So kind of debunk that myth for us and kind of dig a little deeper into really how much does our body and tissues need oxygen and how much does our bodies really rely and need some carbon dioxide as well? So carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is very low, you know, in terms of human health, the carbon dioxide pressure in the lungs is 5% of the atmosphere. But the carbon dioxide pressure in the atmosphere is 0.04%. So we produce carbon dioxide internally. It's part of our metabolism. We generate it as part of our metabolism. And it's the carbon dioxide in the blood, which is the key. But it's the carbon dioxide in the blood is, is determined by the carbon dioxide in our lungs. And if we breathe too hard and too fast, we get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs because we breathe it out. And by getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs, It reduces the carbon dioxide in the blood. And when the blood carbon dioxide reduces, hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, holds on to oxygen too strongly. And we don't want our red blood cells holding on to oxygen. There's no point in breathing in oxygen, oxygen transferring from the lungs into the blood, that oxygenated blood doing a round trip around the body and then breathing back out the oxygen. 
We need to get oxygen from the blood to the tissues and organs. Carbon dioxide is a catalyst for that. Now, I'll give you an example. I was going in to do a finals exam. And sometimes in your life, things stand out. And there's a few other things as well, you know. But going into this exam, I was nervous. And as I said, I was, I was a mouth breather, fast, shallow breather anyway. So a bit highly strung. Nervous going into the exam. So I said, I'll take a walk for about three, four minutes before the exam. Before I go into the exam hall, I took a walk and I took these full big breaths. And I walked into that exam hall and I was totally spaced out. And why was I spaced out? The reason being was because I believed it was useful to take these full big breaths. And in the process, I got rid of too much carbon dioxide, which reduced blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. Now, that's that's an example. But you know what? There are people who are listening right now will get it and they will say, yes, there's times that I I was taking these deep breaths and I just felt it wasn't right. But people were telling me to do it. You know, you had your, your instructor, full big breaths and you hear everybody in the room filling their lungs full of air. Oh, my God. You know, you're going into a tender studio to get better oxygen delivery throughout the body. And instead, what's happening is the opposite. Check out the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. Check out the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve or the ODC. And simply the Bohr effect states, as carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces. Your red blood cells release oxygen to the tissues and organs in the presence of carbon dioxide and change the blood pH. Now, what about the 70,000 miles of blood vessels tried to human body? Embedded in the blood vessels is smooth muscle. If you're breathing too hard, you lose too much carbon dioxide and your smooth muscle constricts, your circulation is impacted. What about the airway? Also has smooth muscle embedded. So people with asthma, people with breathing problems often can have low carbon dioxide. Look at long COVID. Look at the report that came out of Mount Sinai Hospital. All patients, all patients with long COVID, low carbon dioxide. Part of what we've been doing for 20 years was helping to normalize breathing volume, to normalize carbon dioxide in the blood, realizing that carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas. It's the primary regulator of blood pH. It's not our food. It's through our breathing. It's an influencer of the, our blood vessels, our blood circulation, our oxygen delivery, and also carbon dioxide in terms of stimulating the vagus nerve. Because when we go into low carbon dioxide, we can have brain cell excitability and agitation of the mind. And even epilepsy can play a role. In panic disorder, it can play a role. I think many people will, will think of, you know, somebody's having a panic attack. And what was the instruction? Where's, where's the brown paper bag? Put the hand, the, the bag over the face. Rebreathe carbon dioxide back into the lungs to increase it in the blood, to increase blood flow to the brain, to have a calming effect in the brain. So that idea about oxygen is good and carbon dioxide is bad. Well, it just doesn't hold true. So when you're teaching your breathing, it's lower, slower, and deeper. Is that correct? LSD? Yeah. So normally what I start off with is light breathing. Or lighter. Say, for example, if I have somebody coming in my door and if I tell them you need to breathe light, slow, and deep, well, straight over, it goes straight over their heads. So we focus on light first to reduce the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide because every breath that we take into the human body, that's driven by carbon dioxide. That's not driven by oxygen. Your oxygen has to drop by 50% before oxygen stimulates your breathing. But some people have overly sensitive to carbon dioxide buildup. And as a result, their breathing is hard and fast. So carbon dioxide is the stimulus to breathe. And people who have disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise, that can very much be over due to overstimulation of their breathing because of the poor sensitivity, or sorry, a strong sensitivity to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So we start off with light breathing, and then we will bring in low breathing, and then we will bring in slow breathing. Right. And so to your point, and I believe reading some research, people's oxygen levels would not change. They would just be in, induced with uh, more carbon dioxide. So again, oxygen would not change, just increased carbon dioxide. And that would lead the people to feel this 
feeling of suffocation or not yes. being able to breathe in their throats, yet their oxygen levels had not changed. It was just carbon dioxide. During the breed light. Now, yeah. there will be a small change, and I'll just explain this. Normal blood oxygen saturation is between 95 to 99%, and hemoglobin is the main carrier of oxygen in, in the blood. And your SAO2 or your SPO2, it's a measurement of the fraction of your hemoglobin occupied by oxygen. So normally it's about 97 to 98%. If you start breathing less air, and by breathing less air, you increase carbon dioxide in the blood, hemoglobin will release oxygen a little bit more readily. So your SPO2 might drop a small bit, but that's good. Your SPO2 is dropping because hemoglobin is releasing oxygen. But what people do sometimes think is that when they are doing breathing less, when they are breathing less air, and they should practice this this evening when you're at home and you're sitting into a nice comfortable chair and you know with a decent enough posture, place your attention on the breath. Nobody needs to know what you're doing. Just give it a go and take a very soft breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And when you're breathing in softly, almost breathe in that the breath in is imperceptible. Can you breathe in so soft and so quiet that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move and are really relaxed in a slow and a gentle exhalation? And by breathing softly, you don't get rid of as much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. So as you breathe soft, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and this generates the feeling of air hunger. But bear, bear in mind, the increased carbon dioxide is going to be improving your blood circulation and improving oxygen delivery. So you're there breathing less air. You're feeling that you're not getting enough air, but yet your body is getting more oxygen than when you were breathing normal. Yeah, that's an interesting paradox. Um, but like you're saying, it builds your body, builds your metabolism, your your lung capacity to be more resilient. It's kind of like a hormetic response, right? You're stressing it, little bits of stress to cause a longer lasting beneficial response. So yeah, well, that's one aspect of it. And we even go further, like we do long breath holes and... Some of these aren't for the faint-hearted. You know, we do 40-meter sprints and a breath hold, breathe in through the nose and out through the nose, pinch the nose, hold, and sprint for 40 meters with a 30-second semi-active recovery. And you have to sprint again for 40 meters in the breath hold. And we do five of them to a set. We do those typically with elite athletes because that's a stressor. And that's going to cause adaptations, including increased buffering capacity and you know, diaphragm, and it puts a load onto the diaphragm and things like that. So suppose with the breath, you know, sometimes alpha males come into me and these guys are, you know, they're they're fit and they know everything. And, you know, what's breathing? Breathing is a lot of, yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, you think that breathing is a lot of crap now. By the time we're finished this session, you will you will soon find out that breathing is, there's different things with the breath, you know. So that's, and it's good because I just think it makes it interesting. And the other thing about this is that if somebody comes into me with a little bit of anxiety, I'll start off easy and improve blood flow. And we bring them through in terms of getting that balance in the autonomic nervous system. But then I will stress them a little bit and I will have them do graded breath holds. And the reason being is because I want them to relax to the feeling of discomfort and that slight feeling of suffocation. I want them to embrace it. And it, it is training. It's training the brain. Don't, don't react to the feeling of discomfort. And we, we use that. And we use it with panic attacks as well, but we do it very gently because I've, I've made mistakes and I've put people into panic attacks. A little feeling of air hunger just to train the body that, yeah, air hunger is okay and that you're not reacting so strongly to the feeling of suffocation. That's kind of a good segue into one of my other questions about higher-end athletes, which is, well, your book, The Oxygen Advantage, is really about helping breathing techniques so athletes can become more fit. And so my brother's a pretty high-end competitive cyclist, and he's always posting pictures about his races, and he's always doing very well or quite well. But his pictures, of course, he's always mouth-breathing. And so now reading these books, especially yours, I'm much more in tune or I'm much more aware of the deficits or the negative ramifications of breathing through your mouth, even in high intensity exercise. So my question is for my brother, for those higher end athletes, um, especially endurance athletes, how can they train to breathe through their nose throughout their entire 
uh, let's say training and then competition. Cause like with my brother, some of the cycling events, they're sprints. Some of them are mm-hmm. uphill. Some of them are, some of them are uphill and gravel. So you're huffing and puffing. So how do you train athletes? That's <laughs> not going to happen. Your nose. Yeah. So, so, so then what's the answer or like, um, so the answer there is for number one is your, bre- your brother comes in and we measure his bolt score. And we want to get your brother's bolt score up to 25, well, minimum of 25 seconds. We want to get it up to 40 seconds. We want your brother to be having his mouth closed during sleep, mouth closed during the day. We want him to have good functional breathing because if he has good functional breathing during rest, he's not going to gas out so soon during physical exercise. And then during his training that we do some breath holds and we also do some nasal breathing and nose breathing to add an extra load because when you breathe through your nose, there's a resistance. Your nose is a smaller entry than the mouth. And that's going to help to train the diaphragm. Diaphragmatic strength is very important because if the diaphragm gets tired during physical exercise, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm and the legs give out. So it's about improving breathing function, but it's also about improving breathing strength. And we will do, of course, some mouth breathing. He's going to be doing mouth breathing. But we talk about how do you improve alveolar ventilation? So those small air sacs in the lungs, is there a way to breathe that you're going to enhance the gas exchange taking place? And there is. If you're breathing fast and shallow, you're wasting a lot of air in dead space. And I'll just give you the maths quickly. If somebody was breathing 20 breaths per minute and their tidal volume is 300 mil, well, 20 by 300 is six liters. So we'll say they're taking six liters of air into their mouth in one minute. But because their respiratory rate is so high, we have to find out what's what of that six liters, how much of it gets down into the small air sacs in the lungs. And to find that out, we have to subtract dead space. That's the air that stays in the nose and the throat and the trachea and the bronchi and the bronchioles, the first 16 bronchioles. So if you are breathing 20 breaths per minute with a tidal volume of 300 mil, and you're taking six liters of air into the body, when you subtract dead space, only three liters of that gets down into the small air sacs in the lungs. 50% is wasted. Now, if people realize that if they breathe in a way and they're wasting 50% of the air intake, they're going to change their breathing. So how should you breathe? Well, if you slow down the respiratory rate and have a higher tidal volume without increasing minute ventilation, you will enhance alveolar ventilation. And the key is, don't overbreathe. You know, instead of breathing 20 breaths, slow it down maybe to 10 breaths. If the size of each breath increases, say, to 600 mil, and you still have six liters, well, then you can see here that alveolar ventilation has increased to 4.5 liters. So, yeah, you can significantly enhance alveolar ventilation, but the worst way to breathe is fast and shallow. And the most economical way to breathe is nose slow and low. Okay, during sprinting, you have to have your mouth open. There's times where the intensity is too much. You have to have the mouth open, but then with lighter and moderate intensity, switch back to nose breathing. So basically instilling that habit during your daily life, like you've talked about already of um, breathing through the nose, uh, lighter, slower, deeper, it's kind of instilling that into your daily habit. But then as an athlete incorporating as much nasal breathing as possible, until it's to the cusp of, you know, that high intensity where you have to breathe through your mouth, but then as soon as possible, breathe through the nose again. Is that kind of the general idea? Yes. Without, there shouldn't be anything extreme. You know, when you're breathing through your nose, you should be comfortable breathing through the nose. There should be nothing excruciating. Otherwise, you're going to irritate the inside of the nose. Like if somebody is doing sprinting, I would actually have them do breath hold sprints on land without the bike. And I would do that last, that 40 meter sprint that we we're talking about, or even you know, to improve buffering capacity. And when I'm talking about this is to be able to delay lactic acid and fatigue. So improve the buffering capacity inside the muscle department. Don't do it if the person is pregnant or, you know, any serious medical conditions. Take a normal breath in through the nose, out through the nose, pinch the nose, hold the nose, start jogging on the spot and then go into a fast jog and into a run. Keep holding the breath and keep relaxing and keep going until the air hunger gets pretty intense. Then let go, breathe through the nose and minimize your breathing. Get your breathing under control for about six breaths and then normal breathing for 12 to 18 breaths. And do that five or six times per one set and maybe one or two sets a day. Because if you think of athletes are stimulating anaerobic glycolysis, so your brother is a sprinter, 
And he will train by sprinting in order to prepare his body to cope with sprinting. And the problem is that training sprints are trauma to the body and can increase the risk of injury. Whereas when you sprint with the mouth open, your blood oxygen saturation will drop down to about 83%, sorry, 93%. If you sprint with the mouth closed, your blood oxygen saturation drops down to 91%. If you did a jog in your sitting room holding your breath, you can drop your blood oxygen saturation down to 85%. So the jog in your sitting room while holding the breath is a much stronger in terms of stimulating anaerobic glycolysis than the sprint, which are mouth open or closed. Athletes are sprinting with their mouths open or closed, and instead they should be replacing those sprints, some of them at least, with jogging with breath holes because they're less traumatic and stronger effect. So in a way, a more a bigger bang for your buck without stressing the body as much. Yes. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Um, let's circle back for a moment to, you were talking about sleep apnea and then um, taping the mouth as a mechanism to help train or retrain the body to breathe through the nose. So step one or or question one, um, for someone who's just starting off with, um, what would you call a tape or mouth tape, mouth taping? Tape is now it's, it's like, I have a disclosure. It's my own tape. It's called a myo tape. I can show it to you, you know, just to, we, we use this when we developed it for children and teenagers and, um, because through the progression from someone who wants to, maybe start implementing that because they're a snorer or they're a mouth breather. So how can they well, say it's things? like this? So say for instance, here's the tape here. So it's yeah. elasticated, stretch it across the mouth. So for people listening, it's like a, almost like a, um, a donut in the shape of an ellipses. And now it's around his mouth. It's not covering his mouth. So, but it's pulling my lips together. And it's also activating the muscles here, the orbicular source muscle. So helping to activate the muscle, bringing attention to bring the lips together to to enable me to breathe through the nose. Let's look at it this way, Mike. Make the sound of a snore through your mouth. And it goes like this. Now close your mouth and try and snore through your mouth. Can't. So mouth snoring stops once you you have the mouth closed. It's not possible physically. You can't snore through the mouth. Make the sound of a snore through your nose, and it goes like this. Now breathe really slowly through your nose, a really slow breath coming in through your nose and a really relaxed and slow breath out. And as you breathe slowly through your nose, try and snore. You'll find it's more difficult. So we use getting them out closed, and for that we use the myotape and we also practice breathing exercises to reduce and normalize the flow of breathing. People who breathe hard, people who are, you know, you see them sitting down here and you look at their breathing and you can see they're breathing quite easy during rest. Their breathing is that bit harder and faster during rest and they go to sleep and they've got harder and faster breathing and increased turbulence in the nasal airway and the back of the throat And this then in turn is causing resistance to their breathing. The problem at the moment with sleep medicine is that sleep medicine seems to focus only on the airway, the pipe. It doesn't focus on flow. But yet any engineer, if they were looking at a pipe, they're not just going to look at the pipe. They're going to ask the question, well, what's supposed to go through this pipe? A pipe and the diameter of the pipe by itself is irrelevant without understanding the flow. And if you have somebody who's breathing harder and faster, they've got increased flow. That's generating turbulence. So I've seen amazing results with sleep over the last 20 years. And I've often spoken at sleep congresses. And one congress I spoke about was in Bordeaux in 2016. And it was a Dr. Christian Guimano there, a Stanford-based medical doctor. And he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea back in the 1970s. He also developed the apnea hypopnea index, which is is a measurement of severity. He stood up in the room and he said, doctors, he says, you've missed the elephant in the room here. And the elephant in the room when it comes to sleep is breathing through the nose. You have to be breathing through your nose during sleep. Now, here's the top medical doctor for sleep in the world, considered one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine, talking about the importance of nose breathing. He's written many papers. You'll see it, nasal disuse in children. 
He said we must teach our children to breathe through their nose during sleep. He said the only valid and complete correction of pediatric sleep disorder breathing is restoration of nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep. He just didn't say get the child breathing through the nose during sleep. No, he said get the child breathing through the nose during the day and during sleep. He also said children who undergo tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, there is a 65% relapse in their sleep unless nasal breathing is restored. And that happens within three years. Now, thousands of kids in the United States are after having an adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy today. How many of those kids were encouraged to breathe through their nose afterwards? I would say zero. With the exception of there are some ear, nose and throats, the Brett Institute in Los Angeles, for example, and there are others, there are some select ear, nose and throat doctors who understand that if we do tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy in children, we must restore nasal breathing. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So if parents are thinking, well, you know, the problem is the enlarged adenoids. Well, you know, the problem too is mouth breathing. And if you can get your child breathing through the nose during wakefulness and during sleep, and it's really a great place to start. By the way, all the videos for children are free. They're all up there free of charge. If you go into YouTube and put in Patrick McKeown children, we put out all of the videos. Everything is for free for kids. Sit your child down, have them go through the videos. They're fairly self-explanatory. And um, yeah, it, it can help. And do a little bit of research because Are those once videos you go down this. So you could go to butecoclinic.com forward slash buteco children. Or if you just go into YouTube, and go to Buteco Clinic channel, and you'll see that the, the videos for kids there is about eight eight different exercises: the nose and blocking, running, jogging, breath holds to help open up their nose, slow breathing to help train the diaphragm. So they're all there. Perfect. And so it's very clear, objectively, empirically, breathing through the nose is a must for awake, uh, awakeful life and sleeping. So. What if someone's using a CPAP machine for sleep apnea? Can they retrain themselves to breathe through their nose and potentially wean off of the CPAP machine? Or what do you do with people that are using uh, the CPAP machine? So somebody who's wearing a CPAP machine, we look at their breathing during wakefulness and we work to improve their breathing from a biochemistry, a biomechanical point of view. We also teach them resonance frequency breathing because with sleep apnea, there's reduced heart rate variability. So the body, in terms of the autonomic, there can be an autonomic um, dysregulation there. And we improve breathing, first of all, and then we encourage them, the individual, to go to do a sleep study. And in the sleep study, they have to wear the tape and to practice reducing their breathing before they have the sleep study. So in the sleep study, make sure that you're wearing the tape so you're breathing through the nose. You've already established good breathing patterns. And let's look at what the AHI is when your breathing is functional and through the nose. And you will see that the, the AHI is significantly reduced to the point that some people have been able to come off CPAP. And those who are wearing CPAP, you should still breathe through the nose you shouldn't be having your mouth open. It does reduce compliance when you have the mouth open. It's not ideal. Yeah, so CPAP is also with nasal breathing. Gotcha. Yep, that makes sense. I would have expected that type of an answer. Lastly, we're running short on time here, Patrick, so bear with me. A couple more questions. Let's circle back to breathing for exercise. Okay, we talked about my brother who's a high-end athlete. What about for those people that are just everyday exercisers, they're just doing their cardio, the stair stepper, you know, the, the treadmill, what have you, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, people that are just doing normal cardio, is it a similar breathing regimen or breathing tips that you would give people as far as breathing through the nose as long as you can tolerate given the intensity of your exercise? What would you tell them? Yes, nose breathing all the time, nose breathing during sleep. Don't wake up at a dry mouth in the morning. Men should wake up having an erection. It's very important. And But men with mouth open and sleep disorder breathing are more prone to erectile dysfunction. And the problem with this is it's telling that the blood vessels may not be working the way they should be working. So we all should wake up with a moist mouth in the morning. Nose breathing during rest. And also, yeah, do all of your physical exercise with your mouth closed. Initially, it's a bit tougher. The air hunger is a little bit stronger. But bear in mind, what is the air hunger? Carbon dioxide is higher in the blood. 
So carbon dioxide is higher because when you do physical exercise, you're generating more carbon dioxide because of your increased metabolism. But by breathing through the nose, the carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. But this is causing more oxygen to be released to the working muscles. So you stay aerobically for longer. Your recovery is much better post-physical exercise. And even though it's a little bit more challenging to breathe through your nose during the first five or six weeks with physical exercise, the air hunger diminishes with practice. And then it becomes easier. And your fitness levels is improving. Now, there are some sports medicine scientists going down this route. One is George Dallum. And he's from Colorado State University. And he looked at 10 recreational athletes. And he got them breathing through the nose for six months. And then he tested them. At the end of six months, they were able to achieve 100% of the work rate intensity with nose breathing as with mouth breathing, but they had 22% less ventilation and the fraction of expired oxygen was less. So in other words, their body utilized oxygen better with nose breathing than with mouth breathing. And I know that, yes, there are not so many sports medicine scientists going down this route of nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, but here's my prediction. There will be. Watch this space. Gotcha. I believe you too. So lay the foundation from your day-to-day life, just a normal breathing through your nose, but then of course, exercising, integrating as much nasal breathing as possible. It's going to be difficult at first, but with persistence and consistency, it'll improve. It'll become easier and your fitness level and your resilience will increase as well. Correct. Okay. And then lastly, Patrick, you You alluded to this earlier in the episode about people being in their homes. The air is not necessarily clean. God forbid you live in a a big city that has a lot of air pollution or like me, I'm in Montana. And right now there's a ton of forest fire smoke. So the air quality is not great outside, which inevitably comes inside and gets trapped. So the question being, um, what are some air filtration systems or air filtration technologies that you would suggest for people or or what's your general uh, suggestion for improving air quality in the home? Yeah. And I'd always come back to though, if you are in a a situation that's polluted environment, nasal breathing is key. And I'd even tie this in with COVID. There's a gas called nitric oxide that's produced in the paranasal sinuses. When you breathe through your nose, the gas is antiviral, it's antibacterial. It's really, really important. Your nose is your first part of defense of the air coming into the human body, regardless of the, the quality of the air. Always make sure that you have your mouth closed because your nose will be some filtration before that air comes into the lungs, as opposed to the mouth. As I said earlier on, there's no filtration by the mouth. The mouth is just, a, it's just a hole. It has no purpose. Well, that's a good answer. Use your own filtration system. <laughs> yeah, but it might be as good as, you know, if you bring in technology in or whatever, you know, if people need technology, they need to have a filtration system. But yeah. No, but that's a good point about breathing through your nose induces the release of nitric oxygen, which obviously explains why you get that vasodilation that improves circulation, which means oxygen can get transported to more places. But like you're saying, there's the immunity effect, the antiviral, antibacterial yes. But you can't get that when you breathe through your mouth. So use your own filtration system and get that increase in nitric oxide. Yes. All right, Patrick, I really appreciate your time. I think the audience and, and myself learned a lot from you. Of course, you came out with that, that initial book, I believe, The Oxygen Advantage. But then this year, you had those two other books that people need to check out. Atomic Focus, which looks at breathing and concentration and focus. And then like you were telling me before we started recording, the breathing cure seems to go much deeper into breathing, into different maladies and health conditions, and much more information versus the oxygen advantage was a little more athlete inclined, correct? Yes. Yes. It seems to be that people don't realize that so the breathing cure is is a book, separate chapters for separate conditions, sleep apnea, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, et cetera, et cetera, and showing the science behind it as well as the exercises. So yeah, it's, 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 it's time breathing has, has, has changed, you know, it's really turned around the last three years has been an amazing awareness on this space. And I think it's great. And the beautiful thing about it is that it's free. It's really up to you to yes. practice yeah. it and not necessarily perfect it, but improve upon it. And uh, the health and wellness benefits will be there. Yeah, it's a beautiful endogenous technology that we've just forgotten that we have. And lastly, Patrick, besides the books, where can people go to learn more about you and learn more from you? 
websites arbutecoclinic.com and oxygenadvantage.com. You'll see us on YouTube, on Instagram. I've got about nine books up on Amazon. If you put in my name, you'll see different books for kids and asthma and sleep and different conditions. And uh, the three books that you mentioned, The Breathing Cure, The Oxygen Advantage, and Atomic Focus. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put all those uh, website links and, and book titles in the podcast description. But Patrick, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a pleasure learning and, and talking with you. And I hope that our paths cross again, we can we can talk some more. And maybe have you on later when, when some more information, more research comes out or otherwise. But it's been a pleasure having you on. And any last words? Mike, I think for people, start with nose breathing. Start with what Mike was talking about earlier on. Pay attention to your breath. You know, it's just one of those things. It's There's something really fundamental about giving yourself some attention and drawing your attention inwards onto the breath and it's so calming for the mind and i think it's really good to give ourselves some attention slow down your breathing if you're getting into a stressful situation watch how your breathing changes and always remember that if your breathing is fast and shallow you're going to feel a bit more stressed so you can exert control of your breathing the best way to do this is just whatever you do is do something on it Whatever you do is going to be positive. Yep. I love it. Again, Patrick, appreciate your time. Everyone, I'm sure this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as what you can learn from Patrick. Go check out his websites. Go check out his books. But for Patrick McGowan, this is Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off another episode of The Red Light Report. Everybody have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to The Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, Go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.